Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. Hey there. Welcome or just welcome back. I'm Robin Goebel, and you've stumbled upon the Parenting After Trauma podcast, where I take the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and translate that for parents of kids who've experienced trauma. And if you're here and you're not parenting a kid who's experienced trauma, welcome to you too. I know so many more parents and families are tuning into the podcast that don't necessarily identify with parenting a kid with a history of trauma, but are still finding so much value here. And I'm so, so glad you're here. I'm a psychotherapist with over 15 years of experience working with kids who've experienced trauma and their families. 
I'm also a self-diagnosed brain geek and relationship freak. I study the brain kind of obsessively and even teach the science of interpersonal neurobiology in a certificate program. I started this podcast on a whim with the intention to get free, accessible support to you as fast as possible. So the podcast isn't fancy and I do very little, if not almost no editing, though you may be noticing that I've upped the fancy by one gold star by getting a new microphone. So what this means, though, is that you're probably going to be hearing fewer cockadoodle-doos in the background, which I know a lot of you are going to feel super disappointed by. If you love this episode, even without the cockadoodle-doos, please add Parenting After Trauma to your favorite podcast player so that we can hang out weekly. And also go ahead and leave me a rating or a review. When the episode's over, head over to my website and see all the great resources I've created for you. You will definitely want to download the free ebook I wrote for you all about the brilliance of attachment. Readers have told me that not only is it beautiful, but it teaches attachment in a completely new way. One that makes it understandable and completely shame-free as well as like relevant and useful in your real life. So you can get that ebook over at robingobel.com slash ebook. Today's episode, like all episodes, is sponsored by The Club, a virtual community of connection, co-regulation, and of course, a little education for parents of kids impacted by trauma. The Club just finished up a deep dive embodied exploration of attachment, and we're moving now into an in-depth body-based learning and implementation of how to strengthen the foundation of the brain, both ours, the grown-ups, and our kids. Y'all, we could all use a little help. On the day this episode airs, October 5th, the club is still open for new members, but today is the final day. So if you're hearing this episode on Tuesday, October 5th, you're going to want to pause, like pause the episode, go now to robingobel.com slash the club before the doors close. Cause I don't think I'm going to open them again until February, 2022. If you are hearing this episode after October 5th, you can still head over to robingobel.com slash the club and add yourself to the waiting list. And then you'll be sure that you'll be the first to know when the club opens again to new members. So today I'm going to be talking about something that I think about a lot. And if you know me personally, you probably also think that this is something I talk about a lot. I don't know that I talk about it as much as I should be talking about it. So I'm dedicating this whole episode to this question of when and how did trauma-informed care become another behavior management technique? Plus, I think we should talk about like if that did happen, which it did, let's just say it did, why is that bad and what can we do about it? Probably like some of you, trauma-informed care was my first introduction to a new model on what we believed about behavior, right? It was a, it's a model that goes past the behavior that you see, so it moves kind of outside this behaviorist lens. And it's a model that encourages us to look way beyond the behavior, to like get underneath the behavior and get curious about what was driving the behavior. And y'all, that's not how I was trained. That's not the culture I was raised in. That was a big paradigm 
shift for me. So as a brand new therapist, I remember asking a really good mentor who I was you know, consulting with about a case in a teen who was demonstrating some behavior that we would all agree was dangerous, scary behavior we needed to try to figure out a way to do something about. And we had this really great clinical discussion about it. And I I remember asking him like at the end of it, like, okay, all of that's really fine and good. That's fantastic. But what about the consequence? Right. And part of why I was asking this is because I wanted to feel competent that I knew what to do and I knew what to tell his parents what to do. Like somehow my 24 year old self knew how to solve this family's problem that they'd been with, you know, like dealing with for a really long time. And if we just think of the right consequence, everything, you know, would get better. And so my very wise and wonderful mentor looked at me with, honestly, I'm sure like a little kind of smirk in his eye, right? That smirk of, you know, an an older, wiser mentor who is just lovingly enjoying working with a beginner kind of new young Padawan, right? And he looks at me and says, what would a consequence accomplish? And I said, well, he needs to know that this behavior isn't okay. And my mentor laughed and said, I'm pretty sure that he knows that. And y'all, I mean, really, I had to pause, right? I was like, huh, well, he had a point. But then what, right? What are we supposed to do if we aren't giving consequences? which really is a very curious thought, right? A kid does something that is a clear message of, I am not okay. And we adults are focused on what we're supposed to do to make sure that that child knows that what they did wasn't okay. We're not focused on the fact that they're not okay. We're focused on making sure they know what they did wasn't okay. And My mentor was right. Like without question, this teen knew that what he did wasn't okay. He did not need to be taught that, right? What he needed was grownups in his life who were willing to get curious and brave about what on earth was going on and then try to figure out a way to help him while still offering very clear, solid boundaries. I want to pause there just a second because I said the kiddo needed, this teen needed adults who are willing to get curious and brave. And it took me a while to realize how brave we adults really do have to get in order to get vulnerable enough to acknowledge the truth that when it comes right down to it, we have very little to no control over somebody else's behavior. And y'all, sometimes that's scary, really scary, because sometimes some of you are parenting kids with really scary, dangerous behavior. And connecting to the truth that there's very little that we can do to control somebody else's behavior feels so scary. And when we're scared, 
we as humans get controlling. And it's this that is what leading is leading us to believing that some sort of consequence or punishment is ultimately, you know, if we can just find the right consequence or the right punishment, you know, that's going to change someone's behavior or at least communicate to them that the behavior is not okay. So here's the thing. I'm human too. I, I don't like the feeling of not knowing what to do or of feeling out of control of something, right? But I also couldn't disagree with my colleague that this kid did not need a consequence. And so if the kid didn't need a consequence, I just kind of was left as like, well, um, I don't really know what else to do then, right? And I was uncomfortable with that feeling. I was uncomfortable with, I don't know what to do then, which I will say as an aside, I've gotten extremely comfortable with that feeling, the feeling of, I don't know what to do. And Getting extremely comfortable with that feeling is probably when I moved from being a good therapist to a really excellent therapist. But anyway, because I didn't quite know that I needed to figure out how to be okay with not knowing things, and I really, really wanted to understand, like, if it wasn't a consequence that was going to change this kid's behavior, then what on earth was it? I dove in headfirst into the books, the science. I went searching for, well, then what is behavior? What, what really is behavior? And therefore, then what do we do to change it? That, of course, led me to Dan Siegel, the field of interpersonal neurobiology. I dove further in. I dove further in. Ultimately, that, emer- that, that merges into the growing field of the relational neurosciences. And I just obsessively obsessed about what was driving these kids' behaviors so that we could better help them. I wanted to help these kids. I wanted to help their families. At the same time, I was really quite neck deep in raising my own son. And one day I had this aha moment that I really wanted to parent my son in the way I was supporting the parents in my practice to be with their kids. Except that my son hadn't experienced any significant trauma, any trauma behind, you know, beyond being raised by me and and having a mom as a therapist, right? And additionally, my husband's an educator and a really good one. And so we were both learning from each other about how to be with our kids and our students, our clients and our colleagues in a way that matched our professional values and theory. But again, those weren't all people with a history of trauma. So where was the line between trauma-informed and just good practice based on what we understood about the neurobiology of being human? And maybe even a better question is, why was there a line? So we took our kid out of a school with a relatively archaic approach to behavior management that we would absolutely all agree is not trauma-informed. But I also felt really clear that that behavior management approach wasn't just not trauma-informed. It just wasn't a good way to approach kids or students, any kid, not just kids with a history of trauma. I mean, I remember my husband and I looking at each other one evening after a failed attempt at inspiring some change in our son's school and said to one another, like, why would we keep our kid in an environment that we spend all of our professional hours speaking out against? And without question, I remained 
extremely grateful that I have had opportunities in my life that, and not just opportunities in my life, like privileges in my life that have allowed me that privilege to make the choice of pulling my kid out of school while continuing to be a fierce advocate for the families who don't have those kinds of privileges or choices. Trauma-informed approaches aren't just good for kids with a history of trauma. Truly being trauma-informed means connecting with what it means to be human and then understanding the impact of trauma on top of that. So outside my work with parents in the office and, and their children, I was traveling far and wide, speaking to educators, clinicians, parents all over the country without fail one or all of these questions would be asked. A question like, how do I know if this is a trauma-related behavior or a normal kid behavior? Or tell me how to respond to this child who has a history of trauma because if this other child who didn't have a history of trauma was acting this way, I know how to respond and it would be completely different. Or I completely agree with trauma-informed care, but what about when it doesn't work? Doesn't the child need a consequence then? I wanted to pause the episode real quick and read you this testimonial from one club member. This person writes in, the club has been life-changing for me. For me, feeling alone in the stress and the overwhelm of parenting a child with complex trauma has been traumatic. Here in the club, we are finding healing for ourselves by feeling seen and heard and validated, even though we may have come here for our children's healing. Oh, y'all, that is exactly what I'm trying to do in the club to create a space that's for you that also brings healing to your kids. So the club's open for new members until April 28th. We'd love to have you. RobinGobel.com slash the club. All right, let's get back to the episode. So you know me, right? Like I'm obsessed with trying to understand what human behavior is and where it's coming from. And ultimately I've come to the conclusion that those questions are generally coming from one of two different places. The first place is from a place of people who are just popping out of their own window of tolerance, right? They're being faced with a behavior that's triggering them in a way that they're popping out of their window of tolerance, leaving their prefrontal cortex and moving into a controlling space, wanting to control the behavior. And when we want to control behavior, we move to consequence or punishment. Y'all, this is just human. This is what normal humans do when we're stressed, we get controlling. It happens to me too. The other place that that question was coming from is from somebody who had unintentionally turned trauma-informed principles into another behavior management technique. They were wanting to use the ideas of connection, felt safety, and co-regulation as a means to an end to get changed behavior, which means that they were still at their core, believing that kids need some sort of intervention, some sort of punishment or consequence to quote-unquote act right. And they were willing to try these new approaches for kids who had experienced trauma because there was the hope that this would be the next newest behavior intervention that would get these toughest kids to quote unquote act right. 
But what was being missed was that a complete paradigm shift of understanding the neurobiology of behavior was needed. The neurobiology of being human. To be completely trauma-informed, we have to shift our entire lens on what behavior really is. Otherwise, it will ultimately just become another behavior management technique. The risk there is that when the technique doesn't work, meaning when behavior isn't overtly changed, we revert back to beliefs like this child is just defiant or we just need to give a consequence or what you know is really meaning we just need to give a punishment, right? At the foundation of trauma-informed care is the curiosity to look at what's driving behavior and focus on that instead of just the behavior, along with the recognition that trauma impacts people in a way that ultimately comes out as behavior, right? This is true of all people, right? That, you know, our behavior is just what we can see that is information about what's happening on the inside, right? It's just giving us clues. I can summarize most, I won't say all, but I will say most of what we currently understand about the neurobiology of being human, including polyvagal theory, affect regulation theory, the neurosequential model, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of those, all of those models that we kind of pull into relational neuroscience heading with this statement. And if you're not new to me, you know the same things I say all the time. Regulated, connected kids, people who feel safe, behave well. And without question, we might have to redefine or re-examine what we mean when we say behave well. But that's a whole other post for a whole other episode. Regulated, connected kids who feel safe, behave well. Now, I have deconstructed those words, felt safety, regulation, connection in entire episodes. So you can go back in the podcast. You can find an episode on felt safety. You can find an episode on connection. You can find an episode on regulation. You can find episodes on all of those things combined. I'll give you just a really quick summary here in this episode. Felt safety is about the brain having two settings, a safe or not safe. It's an on-off switch. When we feel safe, we have behaviors of connection. And when we don't feel safe, we have behaviors of protection. So what's a behavior of protection? Behaviors of protection are the ones that leave you not wanting to be in connection with that person or their behaviors that are overtly pushing connection away. Basically, they're the behaviors that have led you to listen to podcasts and read blogs about behavior. Okay, so regulation, what's regulation? Well, all behavior and not just relational behavior, but all behavior like brushing your teeth or riding a bike is driven by levels of energy and arousal in our nervous system. When that energy and arousal is regulated, our behavior matches. Regulated doesn't mean calm or happy. And you can go back to my interview with Lisa Dion. That episode's called Regulation Doesn't Equal Calm, right? To get more about that concept. But regulated just means inside my window of tolerance. Regulated means connected to myself, and I have the ability to notice my experience and change it if needed. The kind of behavior that is distressing adults the most is usually dysregulated behavior. The child's not connected to themselves and the behavior doesn't match the situation. 
like flipping over a chair because you can't have a snack five minutes before dinner. That's a behavior that doesn't match the situation. Then connection, right? We did felt safety regulation, not connection. Connection, we know from science, is a biological imperative. That means connections are default. We are driven to find connection, be in connection, and our body works better when we are in a space that's open and available for connection. So if our kids are acting in a way that's rejecting or pushing away connection, we have to pause and ask ourselves, huh, that's weird. What's up with that? And here's the thing, y'all, this is true about all humans, all humans, every single one, not just humans who have been impacted by trauma. I know that if you aren't new to my podcast, again, I know this isn't new information. Just hang with me here. And of course, sometimes it's good to see, I mean, all the time, not just sometimes, it's good to hear things over and over again. We have to start with understanding the neurobiology of being human, and then we can layer the impact of trauma on top of that. So if we start with that foundation about regulation and connection and felt safety, how does trauma impact felt safety? Well, again, a whole episode we could devote to this topic. I'll summarize it here to say trauma leaves people more likely to experience situations that are neutral or even positive as unsafe, meaning they're more likely to, to, to feel unsafe when we would objectively look at the experience and say that that's a safe experience. Their, their default is not safe right? Which means the default tends to move towards behaviors of protection instead of behaviors of connection. And then regulation, trauma impacts the development of regulation in our autonomic nervous system, which impacts all sorts of things. But the one thing I'll mention here is that this impact on regulation leads to the mountain out of a molehill phenomenon, right? That people with a history of trauma and how that impacts their regulation can have really big reactions to objectively small stressors. And then connection. Trauma can leave connection, something that's supposed to bring a felt sense of safety to our system as something that instead brings a felt sense of threat. Now, connection is a biological imperative. We're always searching for connection. We need connection to be okay. And connection is a way that we soothe and feel safe. So what's it like to be driven towards something, to need something in order to feel soothed and safe that is also experienced as threatening because of what one has learned from previous experiences connection in connection? So again, pause and think about that for a moment. And then if you're more curious about this, head back to the episode on disorganized attachment. And again, think about what would it be like to be both simultaneously driven towards something, to need to have something as part of being human, while also experiencing that something as dangerous or threatening, right? There's really hardly a greater tragedy. Now, I've sometimes worried about, and I've even gotten some feedback that I've unintentionally minimized the impact of trauma by first focusing on the neurobiology of being human. Laying trauma-informed principles on top of the neurobiology of being human is how we truly recognize and honor the impact of trauma. And 
I've just come into a space where I believe that in totality, that first thinking about the neurobiology of being human doesn't minimize the impact of trauma or minimize the need for trauma-informed care. It actually elevates it. What if without thinking about the neurobiology of being human, trauma-informed care is actually reduced to a behavior management technique? What if people with a history of trauma who don't produce the desired behavior in response to someone's trauma-informed intervention is just labeled as just defiant or needing a punishment or a consequence? But y'all, regretfully, obviously, these aren't just what ifs. These are things I see happening every day. If we can shift our lens and see behavior as an expression of someone's internal state, their autonomic nervous system, their level of arousal, their experience of felt safety, we change how we see everyone's behavior. We shift to a place where compassion emerges and boundaries are clear. We create systems and cultures that are not only a space for all humans to thrive, but are especially a place for people with a history of trauma to thrive. Changing how we see people changes people. People with a history of trauma are people first. Then the way trauma has impacted the development of their nervous system, their regulation, their connection to felt safety, their ability to feel safe in connection, and even the way they make and retrieve memories can then be understood on top of that, layering the impact of trauma on top of what we know about what it means to be relationally, socially, and behaviorally human. People with a history of trauma aren't broken. They're having a completely reasonable adaptive response to experiences that they never should have had. The neuroscience of being human confirms this. To be truly, truly trauma-informed, we have to go beyond being trauma-informed. We have to be willing to turn upside down our beliefs and the systems upon which we've built those beliefs about what it means to be human. This means confronting all the times someone has treated us in a way that taught us we needed to be punished in order to be good. This means confronting all the times we've treated others that way. And y'all, that's hard and gutsy and brave, and you're doing it. We're doing it by just you know, listening to this podcast, by listening this far, by coming back every week. We're changing the world for generations to come forever, right? We're creating a space for people to heal from trauma. And maybe, maybe we're creating a space where people experience less trauma because all humans are seen for who they really are. Completely amazing, precious people who sometimes act bad. I mean, sometimes act really bad. RGL, I mean, really seriously, truly, I just can't even hardly express my gratitude that you're here, that you've listened this far. You're still here. You still keep coming back. You love kids this much. You love yourself this much. What we are doing here together, me and you and everyone who's listening, it's changing the world. 
Y'all, let's just keep doing this. I'll see you next week. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what? If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash being with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.